0: Hi, my name is David Peterson. I'm the creator of the Dothraki language for HBO's Game of Thrones and the alien language and culture consultant for Sci Fi's Defiance. And you're listening to Genretainment.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment at SciFiPostRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks
2: and Julie. Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now, for this 99th episode, we, chat, yeah, woo-hoo. we chat with filmmaker and conling professional Britton Watkins.
1: Britton tells us how he became involved with conlang, which stands for Constructed Languages, we mm-hmm. didn't know, which led him to learning fictional alien languages like Navi, Vulcan, Klenon, and creating his own languages for his science fiction film, Sen. He also tells us how those skills landed him a job on Star Trek Into Darkness. And we learn about his upcoming feature documentary on Conlane called Conlining.
2: We have an interesting and detailed discussion about constructed languages and the different types, then learn more about the documentary and take a behind-the-scenes look at the sci-fi film Sen. But before we get started with the interview, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It was a song performed and composed by our friend Tishon Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our interview with Britton Watkins. Well, hi, Britton. Welcome to Jean Retainment.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: Well, we are excited to talk to you about Conlang, your film Sin, and your upcoming documentary. So let's start off with how you first got involved with creating languages.
0: Well, that's a good question. You know, up until about 2010, the end of 2009, 2010, the appearance of, of Avatar in the not language, I really didn't do very much at all with constructed language. I knew that conlangs existed. I knew there were people who were out there and who made them. Of course, I knew about Esperanto. I owned the original Klingon dictionary from the mid-'80s. But I did not actually get down and dirty with grammar and, like, make my own phonology or do anything like that until well after learning not be from Avatar. That really didn't get kicked off then until 2010 2011 so I've only been at it for four or five years or so
2: Wow
1: well, and just in case people don't know what's Esperanto
0: Esperanto was originally conceived by by Zamenhof in Europe over a hundred years ago as a lingua franca for the whole world an international language that that everyone could learn and speak and that would lead the world to a better place in terms of social mutual understanding, and honestly, you know, at some level, world peace. It was just imagined as a language that everyone in the world could easily learn. It has a relatively simple grammar compared to a lot of natural languages. It did enjoy a great deal of success Uh, and still has many people who even speak it as a native language because they were born into a household where their parents met over some kind of Esperanto cultural exchange and ended up speaking Esperanto in the home. So we actually, in the upcoming documentary, will feature some people who speak it and one person who speaks it fluently, natively, because it was spoken in her household from the time she was born.
2: I think that's really neat. I didn't realize how old it was. I thought it was newer than than that. But wasn't there a, a movie that William Shatner did that was in Esperanto or something like that? Yeah,
0: it's called Incubus. It's a black and white film um, from the 60s, I believe. I'm not great with dates, but I, I'm pretty sure it was from the 60s pre-Star Trek. And um, yeah, he's in Incubus speaking Esperanto, not always flawlessly, perfectly, but um, you can <laughs> you can find that various places if you choose to do so. And See young Shat speaking a conlang a lot a lot more than he ever did in Star Trek. That's for sure.
1: Does he speak it with with Shatner accent? Yeah,
2: with the accent, Shatner way. I'll let people go judge for themselves
0: about (laughs) (laughs) whether he's fully realized as his his um, Shatnerism, Shatnerism, his his Shatner-esque delivery. Um, he's, he's definitely acting, let's put it that way.
1: So we threw a few other terms that people hear. We threw conlang and natlang. So what's the difference between those two?
0: Natlang is a common abbreviation for a natural language. That is a language that evolved organically out of the human speaker base. And a conlang is a constructed language that was intentionally put together, intentionally constructed out of concepts and pieces and parts of the way typically that natural languages work. There are some people who do Injlangs or engineered languages that try to break the rules of natural languages or explore new territory. They go into the same way that you might go into theoreticals with physics or some other science. They they try to push the boundary of what language can be. But typically a conlang takes features of existing human languages, the way we make sounds with our normal vocal tract and the way we put concepts together. Human beings tend to do those in very, very different ways depending on what your natural language is, your first language or the languages you're exposed to as a child. But anyway, a conlang is an intentionally constructed language. So conlang is the abbreviation of constructed language.
2: Okay, so I'm trying to wrap my head around the engineered language. How is Um, that different than it constructed? You said it... So is that like a natural language? Well, it is a constructed... Is that like a natural language that they tweak?
0: An engineered language is typically something that tries to push a theoretical boundary. So an engineered language is a subset of a conlang. You can look at the term conlang or conlanging as an umbrella term for all different kinds of other languages. They're artlangs, uh, so languages that are developed for a specific artistic purpose. Most of the languages, certainly, that have been used in films, for example, are artlangs. They were developed as an artistic enhancement to... Something that is a fiction or something that needs some kind of augmentation uh, in terms of the linguistic tapestry side of what's going on. So there are langs and Inglangs langs and ox aux langs, auxiliary languages, which is what Esperanto is. It was conceived as something that would be auxiliary to natural languages, something that people would have as a second language, probably, but that would connect them more readily with other people so conlang is an umbrella term and under that wow. there are all kinds of other specializations and people who would be into englangs engineered languages are probably also people who would be good tend to be better at mathematics or who would be you know have tendencies towards other scientific approaches to to viewing the world and understanding the world so they like to they tend to like to push boundaries they they tend to do things like logical languages for example or languages that look at distilling meaning down into categorizations or organizations and putting them together in very different ways that we don't do in everyday life typically while we're shopping at the grocery store mm-hmm. you know we it's a, a specific approach to building a language that might be used for Everyday communication, but in most cases, in every case that I know personally, I haven't met anyone who is is fluent in an engineered language. Yeah. They tend they tend to be more exploratory.
2: So it's and just sometimes they, they take a logical approach to language, which doesn't generally. It's like exist.
0: if a robot made a language, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it could be as if a robot made a language, or it, I think the better way to look at it is. What if we discovered that an artificial intelligence, an artificial sentience had emerged in a robot or a robot community, Mm -hmm. and the robots were communicating with each other in a way that we can't do because we don't have the right kind of electronic impulses to do it? But what if we tried to find a common ground between the way... A robot would communicate natively with another robot and how a human would communicate with another human. And what if we found a middle ground and we had to make up a language that the robots could get close enough to using and we could get close enough to using robot speak? That's more what an engineered language might be.
2: (laughs) And your kitty's trying to tell you we need to speak kitty cat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but but That's cute. this kitty around here, I hope he doesn't contribute too much to the conversation. But Are you he, kidding? We love
2: it. Um,
0: he's, he's into loud to yell, <laughs> my very loudly.
2: Um, actually, when you we were talking about logic, it made me laugh because I always said that I took German and I took Spanish in school. And I always thought German was easier than Spanish because, to me, German is a lot more logical and uh, it, it's like, it was, it's like, you can graph it out a little bit more. And like, I never could figure out like, sometimes you put an accent mark in Spanish and sometimes you don't. And, you know, and it and then like, you know, and in German, you have like, uh, for a shoe is das shoe, but a glove is hot shoe, because it's a hand shoe. <laughs> you know? and I, I love that kind of logic. <laughs>
0: Well, there are different cultures tend to to focus more on on different things. And yeah. some some languages, for example, um, you know, have a very different approach to time telling. Some languages are more more specific about attribution. That is they have to to mark the evidentiality of where something came from. So when you say there's a bird on the tree, you need to mark somehow, sometimes it's on the verb, how you know that the verb is on the tree. I There's a ver- bird on the tree because I'm seeing it with my eyes right now. Or there's a bird on the tree because someone I trust told me there's a bird on the tree. Oh my so gosh. some cultures tend to be more picky about uh, certain things. And then other cultures are less picky about yeah. other things. And, and it just, you know, the in the conlanging world, People take this to extremes. um, And they 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 imagine, yeah, yeah, they imagine other creatures, for example, who are not human beings, who might have very, very different bodies. And those creatures might communicate in mechanisms that, that involve a combination of something that we might think of as speech and also color. You know, if you can produce color off of tentacles on your head. (laughs) <laughs> then, a word might be a combination of a sound and a bright orange pulse off of tentacle number fourteen. so it <laughs> it can it can be very, very theoretical and artistic and engineered and logical and really out there at the same time. So now,
2: what kind of conling would it be if you created a sign language that was created?
0: Well, it would be a constructed language, and there are people actually who work now in, in creating languages that are for specific communities. For example, um, the blind and deaf community. If you're both blind and deaf and you need to communicate via your hands in some kind of way only because your eyes and your ears don't help. Um, then they're, they're tactile languages. And people who do research on this are, are working on that kind of thing right now, too. So it's not always about science fiction and movies and whatnot. Yeah. It can have a, a really practical application. That's so, interesting. Um, yeah, so conlanging is not just people playing around with funny sounds in their basement. You know, there are a lot of <laughs> practical applications, too. And one day there they're really, well, may need to be some kind of thought about communication between people and machines, depending on if machines do obtain some kind of intelligence, they they may want to communicate in a very, very different way. So the fact that, that conlanging has kind of come beyond something like Esperanto that was conceived as good for the whole world and come out of the kind of shadows that tolkien did it in for example you know he called it his secret vice to make up the elvish languages Mm -hmm. it's really coming into mainstream now and a lot of the people i'm interviewing for my documentary film are very very strong in science and mathematics but also conlanging Mm -hmm. i just spoke with a young guy yesterday who's who's just finished an honors governor's school program in science, and then he's going into statistics in the fall, but he has a constructed language, you know. So the overlap of of some people with a kind of artistic or romantic side for their constructed languages and other people with very kind of scientific or
1: engineering-focused
0: applications is is super interesting to me.
2: That is interesting.
1: Yeah, and so you brought up the documentary. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious if you tell us a little bit more about the documentary and kind of where you're at on that currently, what the yeah. status is currently on it.
0: Well, the status is we've got a lot of hours of footage in the can. Um, the documentary was conceived as my next project after having worked on a purely fictional uh, science fiction project with my husband called Sen. Mm-hmm. And um, I... Sen was super interesting and fascinating to me. And there's a constructed language that I created in that film. It appears mainly visually in the film. But after that, I was interested in the format of documentary filmmaking. I I hadn't done that before. And I thought as a subject matter, conlanging is super interesting to me. And I've met lots and lots of people who are involved in it over the past four or five years. So I started this project in the spring. So far, I've been able to film, I don't know, 30-ish, 40-ish people. And we're just keeping on, keeping on with that. We're trying to show how broad and deep the landscape of conlanging is. And we'll be featuring people from all over the world, really, who do it, who come from all kinds of different linguistic backgrounds originally. And we're just doing one-on-one interviews and Getting footage of all the fascinating artifacts that they create. Some of these people also do calligraphy. They're painters. Um, they're filmmakers themselves. Uh, they do all kinds of all kinds of stuff. And we're getting the kind of famous Hollywood conlingers, too. In fact, people like Mark Aukran and David Peterson and Paul Frommer, Christine Schreier, David Sallow, all people who've worked on the big. Sci-fi fantasy franchises for Hollywood creating languages for those projects have have signed up to be producers in various uh, producer roles on On conlanging the film the documentary. Mm -hmm. So it's super exciting for all of us to work together To show not only the the famous side of conlanging But the really you didn't know this was going on side of conlanging as well
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting well, and I, I do think that there's something to the notion that if people learn to better communicate through language, we understand each other better um you know it is kind of a shame that Esperanto hasn't gotten bigger than it is really because well well,
1: well in a lot of fantasy like at least fantasy role playing games or uh, or also in some sci-fi stuff, they have a standard or common language. You yeah,
2: know? that so. notion of all of us having some sort of common because, you know, you can, you know, you can unintentionally even offend someone. You didn't even realize that what you were saying was offensive, but it's because of cultural differences that, you know, that. That ticked them off, you know?
1: <laughs> right,
0: yeah, and that's something that, um, I mean, that could still happen in Esperanto, of course, but yeah. but communities, whether it's based in Esperanto or, you know, I, I've made friends all over the world who speak not and they learned it because of the film Avatar, so c- speech communities tend to self-select in some ways, too, for attributes that help people get along with each other. It certainly doesn't mean that everyone who speaks Esperanto today is Uh culturally similar. But I think Esperanto probably would have done even better than it did, been more successful than it has been, if certain aspects of, you know, geopolitical things had not happened the way they did. The two world wars, um, the, the role of England and the power of the United States as an English-speaking entity and player in Mm -hmm. geopolitics had a lot to do with the proliferation of English. I mean, not just the wars, but also
2: economics. yeah.
0: Yeah, colonization, certainly economics, all kinds of factors had to do with the proliferation of English. and if English had not come in and filled one of the voids that, you know, Esperanto was supposed to fill, then it probably would have done a lot better. And Um, also,
2: it's not, it's also important to point out that, you know, language is one way of of communicating. There've been times where I've been with someone and we didn't have a common language, but we found ways to communicate and got along very well. (laughs) And other times where, you know, someone I have English in common with is a native language, I you know, couldn't share space with them for more than five minutes without one <laughs> right <laughs> rip yeah, their head off.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, language, the language as a tool is not an assurance of anything in terms of yeah. interaction. its It's a lot about attitude as well. So we're going to show in our documentary that there are still some people. In fact, I interviewed a gentleman in Oakland, California, just a couple of days ago, who is trying to create a language, well, he has created a language, a very big language, robust with a very full vocabulary, that he would like to see proliferate across Western Africa. So in the east of Africa, they have Swahili as a common language yeah. that that people can use for commerce and other purposes. And Arabic tends to fill that void in the north of Africa, but he wants West Africa to adopt his language, which is, you know, like an Esperanto, but one specifically intended for a large swath of multiple countries covering probably over 100 indigenous natural languages. You know, so people are still doing this. People are still trying to find linguistic tools that will lubricate culture and economy in a good way. I understand the human drive to do it but but I also think that if you have a private language that is just for you that makes you happy or maybe you and a family member or you and a friend share together then that's also super interesting and fascinating too you know not languages don't have to be envisioned as these these important tools. They can also be playthings and and that's a completely valid thing for them to be. Like, like I think because, twin languages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well twin languages, you know, twin languages are fascinating because it, it is a spontaneous thing that a lot of twins do. There's research more recently that that they also though can be you have to be careful with them because if twins have a tendency to isolate from other family members and then other children, then it can lead to developmental delays in whatever their native language is in the home. And that if it goes too long, it can translate over into, you know, having problems in school. So there are examples of, of twin languages where the parents or, you know, other professionals tried to work at at breaking them away from that. But it is a fascinating phenomenon that that private language or play language is something that, you know, all most families do it in some kind of way, you know, even with making up pet names or mm-hmm. in my family, we use this word scranchopy. Do you have any idea what scranchopy might mean? <laughs> no. Scranchopy means something is kind of tattered and old. It's kind of falling apart because maybe it wasn't well maintained. So it's very easy for a fabric or um, something that maybe has some flexibility to it to become scranchopy. And we use this in my family like we would use any other kind of word. We're much more likely to say, oh, hand me that scranchopy old rag. You know, I'll mop up this oil spill or something as opposed to saying, you know, that tattered old rag or that rag that's falling apart. We just we use the word scratchope and we know what it means. And that is actually conlanging. I mean in a very, very tiny little way.
2: Well but to it's make also almost like a micro version of a regional dialect too. I mean, right,
0: exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and again, some people within their conlangs then create multiple dialects and they do diachronic change, phonological change over time. So after I hang up with you, I'm going to talk to a guy who's imagined what English would be like in the Northeast of the United States a thousand years from now. So, um, <laughs> so cool. yeah, so it really is cool. I mean, what people do with constructed languages is super cool. And I, you know, I'm finding something new every day. Every time I talk to one of these new Constructed Language Creators. So it's been a great journey so far. And we're probably about halfway there in terms of collecting footage and finalizing the film. We hope to get it done at the earliest by the very end of this year, but next year certainly. And very soon we'll be running a crowdfunding campaign as well. So Hmm. please look for that if you're of a mind to support this project and get in early on it. You can go to conlangingfilm.com And we will have all of the information about whatever crowdfunding platform we end up using and how we go about doing that. But I think some of the rewards will be interesting for people. So definitely check it out.
2: Now, I've been thinking recently about how the Internet and social media, I think, is starting to sort of almost sanitize or sort of change a lot of what used to be regional dialects, at least I know in America. I know that there, just since I was a kid, the way things that we name things have changed a bit. Now I say like soda, but we used to, where I'm from, we used, everything was a Coke. Like you go to a, you go to a restaurant, you say, what kind of Cokes do you have? Well, we have a Pepsi, a Diet Pepsi, a Mountain Dew. <laughs> and right, everyone yeah. knew that you meant a soft drink or a soda, or in some places they call it a pop. Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, just things like that, that we used to, you know, call different things. And I've noticed that over time. And like I, when I was growing up, you know, a woman carried a purse and I still say purse, but I've noticed younger adults and teenagers call it a bag or a handbag. Cause that's what they call it in New York and like LA and, mm-hmm. and they've started and now they, they'll have, Facebook friends from places. And so they started calling these things. And so it's kind of odd that I'm, it's almost like I'm speaking a different dialect in my own hometown from people 10 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's kind of strange. And I know that also a lot of native languages have died off, but it's almost like now there's that void. Does that that kind of feel like that to you? There is this void and then now sort of conlang is kind of coming in and, and filling some of that.
0: I don't know about conlanging coming in and filling that. You you just described several different things that happen in natural language evolution. So one, for example, is that young people do the the evolution, right? They mm-hmm. the, they force the evolution it through usually through slang and slang terms that then get adopted more broadly into general speech. So they would bring a word like sick, for example. I've only understood sick as meaning something good or positive for about 10 years now. Yeah. Before that, I had no idea that sick meant something to young people that was different than ill, you know, like yeah. vomiting. <laughs> but and the first time I learned it is when I um, learned it and really understood it natively is the day that a young person who was about 12 years old saw my iPhone for the first time, like two days after it had been released and they were looking at it and they called it sick. And I'm like, Oh, I finally get, I finally get, I finally understand what sick means in that context. So, you know, the word cool, for example, might be completely replaced by sick a hundred years from now. And sick might be spelled differently. Sick might be spelled S I K, you know, or S Y K and the spelling SYK will mean super cool or hot or, you know, whatever ill or whatever that you know, like whatever the whatever the current understanding
2: Dude, that's of that is. totally so, ill looking. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. You know.
0: We don't know what's gonna happen a hundred years from now. But the other thing is prestige dialect. So the fact that the the term for a purse might change to bag or handbag or something like that is probably a prestige dialect um, coming from the fact that the fashion industry in New York, for example, calls it a bag. So in the case of English, a lot of English comes from French because the Norman court in what is now the UK spoke French for a very, very long time. So because French was the prestige dialect spoken in the court in London, it became absorbed much more or became much more strong foundation for a lot of English vocabulary that we have today. So those things are facilitated certainly by the internet now. Um, yeah. Historically it would have been much slower for people in Scotland to start using anything that had French in it.
2: Well and it would have um, been upper echelons of society too and eventually it would right. And it, down. Right. Yeah.
0: Exactly. But now because of the you know, egalitarian aspects of the internet and the fact that through tweeting and other things, average people can be communicating commonly with celebrities, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not hard to be in touch with George Takei. He doesn't necessarily (laughs) respond to you, but you can easily reach out to him through different kinds of methodologies. And things like Twitter and Facebook and other internet platforms and communities facilitate the spread of of language change much more rapidly than it used to happen and it now extends very much to even spelling changes you know so so there's a lot of confusion now between whether we still need to spell you are with an apostrophe r e or not you know like it is it's intelligible without oh yeah you no know, that
2: itself. i'm a i'm a grammar Nazi. that's just a nerve
0: <laughs> <laughs> well but for young people who for who texting. are not explicitly taught the difference and if they're te- texting exactly everything may just eventually collapse into you oh. are and you are may may end up being the spelling for all kinds of different words so it's w- again we don't know what's going to happen and the internet is still still new to a lot of us who are in our 40s and 50s but it's basically the only world that people in their 20s know so
2: See, so you it's, you've touched on two of my nerves i'm a grammar nazi and my my fear of robots getting intelligent and taking over i'm just saying this is a common thing <laughs>
0: well i i definitely am not going to be implanted i i did i did get an apple watch recently and it is reading my blood pressure right now but um i don't even have a cell phone yeah well yeah (laughs) but i draw the line at implantation crazy (laughs) yeah i'm I'm gonna draw the line at implantation so i'm i'm not I'm not going to be chipped. I've decided no matter what, what kind of features. No, are available, I don't care. I'm no, I'm
2: going off the grid and living in the woods somewhere at that point is what I'm going to do. Now you did mention T'K and God, I love him. He's like a national treasure. Who doesn't love him? <laughs> but that makes me think of uh, star Trek. Now you worked on star Trek into darkness with Klingon and, mm-hmm. and you had to teach actress Zoe Saldana, right? Um, now, yes. how did you get involved with that project, and how did you approach teaching Klingon to someone? You know, she was fair. She's new to this whole Star Trek franchise, so although she, that's
1: becoming her thing now, is doing alien languages. Yeah, I heroes. know, but at the time,
2: you <laughs> yeah. know, it wasn't.
0: <laughs> she she's one of the dames of alien languages now in Hollywood. She's she has two
1: of them under she's her belt. She's always
2: like blue or green. Is, or that, something is it like at this
1: except scream queens? It could be
2: con. Conc- <laughs> Queens, on Lang
1: queen. Yeah. <laughs> Lang queen.
0: Lang queen, anything is possible. It really <laughs> is. My path to doing that was that I did learn not me and I can speak not me, and after that I became interested in the the fact that there were there was a large fan language around Vulcan. So I did a bunch of stuff on a website that was Vulcan related and when the Star Trek franchise was looking for someone to teach Klingon as a, as a dialogue or a dialect coach. They approached Paul Frommer, who is a good friend of mine now, and he said, well, if this is a Star Trek world and it's Star Trek related, you should maybe talk to Britain because he knows about Star Trek more than I do. And this was because he knew that I had spent a lot of time on Vulcan stuff. So so that was the connection to the production company and I interviewed with them and you know I basically took a bunch of my Klingon books and other stuff with me to the interview and they hired me right there on the spot. So she approached Zoe and there were other there were two other originally in the production two other primary speakers of Klingon and then there was a whole crew of the guys in the battle the stunt guys who also came to Klingon class and learned several lines in case JJ wanted them to say them on the spot there during the performance. Now, none of that ended up in the final film, but I had Zoe plus two other excellent actors who learned their Klingon lines perfectly. And they're listed in the credits, Sean and Nick. And then there were some other, other guys who, who also learned a few lines But we did classroom scenarios a couple of times. We chatted via Skype. Mark Okrand created all of the Klingon dialogue, of course, because he's the guy who does it. And he would send along sound files and he would send along various ways to to read that in the Roman alphabet. And we just did it like a classroom scenario first. And then we practice over Skype. And I was also on set on Kronos for six days to listen to all of the dialogue that was spoken. And if there was any kind of red flag or any kind of ad hoc coaching need to happen there on the spot, I was there to do it. So uh, that was a fascinating experience, but it ended up happening because a, I was well-versed in the way Klingon sounds. I'd had the dictionary since the 1980s. And I also had experience teaching, people other languages for example even in high school i i taught some spanish and japanese to younger kids in in middle school so i had classroom experience i had linguistic experience i had experience with the star trek franchise to the extent that i was well versed in the lore of all the the cultures and languages of star trek and i had professional skills you know i could show up and Work with the people on the lot there in Culver City in Southern California in the same way that I work with high tech consulting clients here in the Bay Area. So, you know, I just took all of my experience and put it together, and it was great. It was a wonderful experience. Mm
1: Can you uh, give us an example of Klingon?
2: Not to, not to well, put you on the spot too much, but we're going to ask you to speak a few things in a few languages if
0: you can. Okay, well, oh, Okay. Well, I'll see. So for Klingon, I really, the things that I know the best and remember the best from Klingon are some of the phrases from the original Klingon dictionary, like, engage the cloaking device. And, <laughs> and the very humorous, which is, Revenge is a dish which is best served cold, which, of course, the Klingons claim is originally Klingon, but other people claim that it came from somewhere else. Um, You
2: know, to me, it seems like Klingons are more hot-tempered and and would wait for their, at most, their revenge to be, like, at most lukewarm.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty spicy, but they're also, (laughs) yeah, but they're also very careful in metting out. Yeah. yeah. they are very yeah, yeah.
2: But I don't so I know like I, I, Klingon. I think it sounds cool.
0: Well it was it was designed to sound cool. I mean it was design, yeah. <laughs> designed to, to take sounds that all occur in natural languages in that language, but put them together in ways that do not typically occur in that language so that it would sound alien. And Mark did that very intentionally.
2: In contrast, we'd like to hear something in Vulcan too.
0: Well, in Vulcan, the Vulcan I have to clarify is there two, at least two different Vulcans. There are actually more than, more than two different Vulcans. Oh, over, the years, <laughs> over the years the years of the franchise, all kinds of different people have done different things. Oh. And so there, there are a few canonical things that have appeared in film that were done by Mark Ockren and a few other people who are not necessarily named in the canon. Vulcan is uh, is not as rough as Klingon, Mm -hmm. and Vulcan is is I I don't know it's inspired somewhat. I think there's some sounds from Semitic languages in it. So there's a ch for example, which Mm -hmm. is also not alien to Klingon. I mean, yes, not alien to Klingon. But um, (laughs) so for example, if I say if I say my name is Britain, I just say Weemish Britain, or I might say Britain Weemish and weemish is the is just a verb like to be called for example mm.
2: how do they and say live long and prosper
0: live long and prosper is canonical from the first film and it's diftor <laughs> hesmusma diftor is an interesting verbal construction as reimagined by the the fans who who do the fanlang f a n l a n g fanlang Vulcan, Dief is a, a tiny little word that means long life. It means living a long time. Mm-hmm. Tor is a verb like do or make, which means do long life. And eh is and. And smusna is a word that means Prosper. Mm. So a verb that means to prosper. So you take dif, which means long life, as a noun, put "tor" on the end of it, and that turns it into a verb. One way to make a verb in Vulcan, mm. in Golic Vulcan, which is the fan language, and then the conjunction "and," eh and "smusma," which is a different, a different word altogether, a different class of verb altogether.
2: So which dif- "diftor um, e smusma Yeah,
0: a... "diftor," tor Diftor hesmusma. Sorry, oh, in that he's. case is H E H. Yeah. Diftor he's. yeah.
2: hesmusma.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Diftor hesmusma. that's cool. But, but Klingon also...
2: sounds way cooler.
0: <laughs> well, again, Klingon. Yeah, Klingon was very, was very intentionally designed to to be something specific for, yeah. for a very different race. The Vulcans are more similar to humans yes, and and can even crossbreed. Uh, of course the Klingons are supposed to be able to do that too. Now, but
1: yeah,
0: but sure. the the origin though of this phrase deftor was that language was originally recorded in English. So the performers were speaking in English and they said, "Live long and prosper." Well, you can count those syllables, live long and prosper <laughs> so someone had to come in and figure out how to say a correct number of syllables <laughs> to make the lip movements match, so the origin of that language was kind of half by accident, the way it would sound and and the Way the things would flow because they already had footage in the can that had English language lip movements. So the word together is tereter. The word for logic is ologica or ojica.
1: <laughs>
0: so there are a lot of similarities between some of the words, canonical words in Vulcan, in Golic Vulcan, and the words that were originally spoken in English. So the, again, sometimes the history of why things get retconned or retroactively constructed but for very um,
2: practical reasons, yeah, <laughs> or for
0: very practical reasons, like we don't have the money to refilm that scene and the actors <laughs> are already on another project, so we have to make it work some other kind of way.
2: Yeah, I love um, that, and that
0: trick. That kind of trickery or reverse engineering still goes on today a lot in in movies that are probably yeah. being filmed right now that will happen in some kind of way, shape, or form. And that just is because the production company, you know, gets to the end, the director gets to the end and they're like, I want to change this in this way. And the only way to do it is to futz around with the, the mouth movements and yeah. the the sounds and the subtitles and whatnot. So yeah, it happens. It happens. Yeah, even that happens
2: today. yeah. Now, how would you say something in Navi from Avatar?
0: In Navi? Um, while, for example, if I say my name in Natvi has a very different pronunciation than Britain, it comes out as in Natvi. So if I say my name is in Natvi, I say and that means one, someone, anyone calls to me Britain. Britain.
2: That sounds so, so it's, cool.
0: It's It's grammatically a little different and it's also phonologically quite different than English. If I say I speak Na'vi fluently, I would say something like, um, and that has adjective sounds like in the verb to speak, there's an adjective sound, which is something that occurs in Mayan and it occurs in African languages, but doesn't happen in English. Ever.
2: Right. So, and it sounds, it sounds like it's definitely an offshoot of Native American languages, some dialects. It, it sounds a well, they
0: bit- have. Yeah, they have glottal stops, which not be has, and um, more common. And adjectives, again, occur in Mayan and some other Native American languages. A lot of North American languages actually have adjectives. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, they all, in those cases, they were all designed to, to fit a certain vibe that was important to the director or the production company.
2: Well, and it fit with the culture of the people there. You know, I mean, they were very revered nature and lived in harmony with nature so it you know you wouldn't think oh it should sound like english <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and we're not really one, known for that <laughs> and in not by the way there's one word that means living in harmony with nature living in balance with nature and it's a an eight-syllable word Mewa unia ea but it's one word Just one word. Because
2: it's just such an integral concept to their culture that, you know, they wouldn't have to explain it too much to each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, but the fact that it's long, that it's eight syllables long, also implies that there's a lot of there could be a lot of backstory there as to where all those pieces and parts oh, of what yeah. it means to them to live in nature. But we don't know where what the etymology is, what the the origin, the derivation, exact derivation. It just implies
2: of it. that it's an evolved culture like any other. So that's neat. Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: there's there's stuff going on in the in the background. Yeah, and and that makes. That makes the language richer and having the language be rich makes the production richer. And that's why that's why big budget Hollywood films and and TV programs like Game of Thrones can go to the effort to have a real language, because then when the actors start performing in it and they do it consistently scene after scene or episode after episode. The audience, even though the audience doesn't necessarily learn the language, they recognize it as a language the same way you would recognize Polish or Mandarin or Spanish or anything else that you might hear and recognize.
2: Yeah, Uh that's just so cool. For sure,
1: And we probably should also mention that there is a group for Conliners, the Language Creation Society.
0: Yeah, there are lots of different groups, but um, a good place to start if you're interested in constructed languages and don't know anything about it is the LCS, and that's conline.org. And the LCS and lots of members of the LCS will be featured prominently in our documentary. One of the reasons that I had to get the project kicked off and going when I did is that the Six Language Creation Conference just happened in the last few months in Horsham, which is outside of London. And there were 50, 60 people there from all over Europe and some from the US talking about constructed languages for two full days. And that conference happens every couple of years, and it's sponsored by the LCS. And the the LCS, the Language Creation Society, actually came into being in order to foster and sustain that conference happening regularly. Because historically, people were conlanging, creating their own languages in complete isolation. They didn't even know that there was anybody else who did it. Then the Internet came along, and it was easy to join a forum or join some kind of online community and talk about your language and share things about your language and learn how to do it from other people who had been doing it longer. But then people actually started meeting physically for the first time. And one of my favorite stories about the Language Creation Conference is that I, I met and interviewed someone who's a really a linguistic prodigy who's from my home state of South Carolina. I met him outside of London. Um, he's currently going to school in in Poland. But he met his new girlfriend at the language creation conference outside of London <laughs> and then went to see her and visit with her before he went back to spend summertime with his family in South Carolina. So, you know, it's it's important, I think, for constructed language people to realize that there are ways to actually meet. And sometimes you might be meeting a really important person in your life <laughs> by making the effort to try to meet other other people who do it, because it is a very specific hobby. It's a very specific interest. And the people who do it tend to be, you know, in some cases, quieter and more you know erudite people people who might tend a little bit more towards academia or something like that but not necessarily people who do it come from all stripes and and all backgrounds and and all cultures and that i'm finding incredibly fascinating
2: that yeah, is cool
0: i think
1: i'm going to make a new site conlang dating <laughs> <laughs> you know you might you might You're have con to Conlang like start- mingle <laughs> Conlangangle. <laughs> like dot com.
0: Yeah, there 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 won't be a billion people on that site. You'll I have promise just Charge you that. everybody
2: like five thousand dollars. Yeah, it's kind of a boutique. While. It's kind
0: of a boutique hobby, but. <laughs> But conlanging is surprisingly compatible with spouses who don't do it as well, as long as you're not too obnoxious about it. Um, well, a lot of, know,
2: and let me just say, as someone who's been married for many years, you master the art of sort of letting your eyes glaze over while nodding a lot and thinking right. about something else if it goes on too long. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not I'm that sure. I know. Not that I've ever done that, babe. I'm just I've heard.
0: I'm sure that there there are a lot of conlangs that have a word for nodding while eyes glazed over.
2: (laughs) And actually putting together, like, the grocery list or something in the back air. (laughs)
0: Right. Yeah. Multitasking while ignoring conlanging spouse. Yeah.
2: That should definitely be a word. I mean... If you could come up with a word written for me for like that, that would be awesome.
1: <laughs> there needs to be a word for that. Yeah, I don't think there is. Oh, I, I think if you'll
0: just open up the if you'll just open up the comments on whatever this is, you you probably get <laughs> from all over the world volunteering great words for that.
2: I bet so that can be like our secret word.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about your film sin.
2: Yeah. So, okay. Speaking of of with spouses, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> made that with your your husband? <laughs>
0: oh, well, right. we, yeah, Josh and I made sin as a kind of a, it was it was his baby. I mean, it was totally his baby. It was his idea to do it, and I kind of came along for the ride as a producer and did do the constructed language Sinyamda for that um, oh, a ton for of that. You there's a ton oh, of it written everywhere yeah. yeah all over the place because we used that as a as a way to inexpensively augment the world building process and the set design and whatnot so so yeah there's a ton of it written everywhere in countless typefaces um but in the bonus features, there's also some spoken Sinhala. Yeah. If people care about that, so we,
2: did. Um, we, we saw that. That was interesting. And the funny thing was, while we were watching it, and and like the name of the place was something like Pyong, and and then it showed the writing, and I was like, man, that just makes me think of North Korea. And um, well, and then in the you say, you know, you showed it to people in Japan, and they were like, oh, that seemed vaguely Korean.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, it. I mean, it. What, one of the inspirations for Pyom. It's. It is Pyom. P. P. Y. O. M. an right. M on the end. Yeah. Um, one of the inspirations for Pyom is. Um, is some of the weirdness that goes on in North Korea in terms of social oppression and kind of cultural control. And like whatnot. what
2: little we even know about it really. Cause it's so secretive. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so it really,
2: it, it lends itself to a lot of imagination getting put in there cause you know, you don't really know, <laughs> you know, it's not good. But, yeah. Uh,
0: and we did imagine if you're really interested in that, for example, um, in the backstory of what Pyom is really like, in the language document, which is available from the Fiat Lingua website, um, you can learn a lot more about the history of Pyom and and why the language is like it is and what the culture is like on Pyom from that document. It's not in any any of the bonus features per se in that level of detail, but there's a whole history of like how the planet got acquired Acquired and what the corporation did when it came yeah. in, and there's lots and lots of texture. If you want to read that in that yeah. document, it's a what? link to that's also available off the Sin website. At and I think SINition. it also.
2: Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, the website for Sin is senition s e n n i t i o n dot com, and there's also a link to. You can find a link to the the language document hosted on on Fiat Lingua, which is an activity related to the Language Creation Society. You can find the document there if you care about the fuller history of of Pyong. But it was partially inspired by North Korea, definitely.
2: And then also, I would imagine the corporatization of our own country. Oh, certainly, yeah.
0: I mean, there are a lot of kind of ironies in what goes on. And we made some actual decisions about the storyline based on on cultures that evolve within large corporations, you know, yeah. a certain apathy for some things. Well, as long as we follow the rules, it doesn't matter how stupid something is, as long as we're following the rule, yeah. you know, one of, in the film we show, but we don't go into any detail talking about the brainwashing that goes on with the machine, the kind of shoving people's faces in this bright light. Uh-huh. And that's purely our conceptualization of that is purely that they do that because The corporate rules don't allow them to easily execute anybody, but there's no rule against brainwashing people. So they just brainwash them so they can't talk, essentially, about whatever the secret proprietary corporate information is that they know. So we we looked at all kinds of things that do evolve, not just out of prison camps in North Korea, but also out of everyday decision making about how people's annual reviews are done in corporations (laughs) in North America. and i
2: found it disturbing but accurate you know when you were talking about how the the company needs them to be able to you know read and write and everything just what they need they need them to be able to have just what they need to do the job and and to be a good employee you know because that is frightening because nowadays you hear people talking about educating our young our youngsters i mean not even college but elementary school and high school they're like well we just need to teach them what they need to know to get a good job in this area you know and we don't they don't need to know creative writing they just need to know basic math they just need to know you know this and that and it's the dumbing down because all we're interested in is having good corporate employees and that's that's very real that's very, very real today. You hear people on school boards, which is very disturbing, um, yeah, talking well, about, you know, well, we just are interested in getting good empo- future employees, not that we want to have an involved, educated citizenry. <laughs> you know? right. We just want yeah. good corporate employees, and they don't even bother hiding it. That,
0: yeah, that I, is the goal. I think, yeah, I think that, you know, and that expresses itself even, I mean, even when I was at university, there were a few classes that were just kind of general baseline, you know, like I remember my psychology class, for example. The tests were all bubble tests I mean they're like you you scribble in and fill in a, a circle on a multiple choice thing, and that has just evolved in the last thirty years or so to become this kind of horrific situation where where teachers are not encouraged to teach creative thinking you they know serve the and. Test. Yeah, Yeah. they they exist
2: to serve the test, not the test exists to be an accurate measure of knowledge. It's they're there to serve the test.
0: Right, exactly. And, you know, it's really quite where it might go is really quite frightening. So when we were exploring unusual things in Sen, we were, we were thinking about it really could Like, this is, <laughs> although Pjom is not imagined as an evolution of our current culture on earth, there's no reason that it couldn't go that way right. in some, some kind of timeline that's long enough. So, yeah, I, I one and one of the reasons I have to say that I find the world of constructed languages so fascinating is that, People are they are taking things that we take for granted, like the most basic skill that any human being has is the ability to communicate, to speak. Right. And we don't have to go in and surgically chop up our languages and take them apart and do all kinds of different things with them. We can just use English or use Spanish or use Chinese or use Japanese. We don't have to think about it. We don't even have to learn how to read and write it. We can just speak. And in a lot of cases, that's good enough. But what constructed language people do is go in and break everything down, not only from their own native language, but they look into Native American languages, they look into exotic languages from Papua New Guinea, other parts of the world. And they're really trying to to figure out how it works and then creatively put it back together in experimental ways. So I think when we lose that ability to experiment and explore, then that's when we're really lost, you know, because yeah. you get you really do get dumbed down into this complacency and of course, 1984 in Newspeak, which is also a kind of foray into constructed language, the the purpose of Newspeak. In 1984 was to get people to fall in line with corporate ideas and, and corporate understanding and not challenge the system, don't challenge the status quo. And we actually looked at that a little bit, or I actually looked a little, a little bit at that in SIN's language, you know, in how they tried to simplify the language and standardize it so that it would you know, it would be a better corporate tool. They didn't care about it as a tool for creativity. They just cared about it as a tool for using a worker base on a planet that they had acquired.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think you gave us a couple, like an example of the language in use, in English and in, and in the language. I can't remember the yeah. name, name of the primary Sin language. Name, but...
0: Yeah, it's called Sinyamda. Yeah, Sinyamda. Sinyamda.
1: Uh-huh. So do you want to introduce that audio piece?
0: Yeah, so so the piece that the piece that I've provided to you is for part of the end of the the monologue that's given by the, the primary female character Kana in our film. And you'll hear her say it in English and then you'll hear her say it in Sinyamda or the other way around if you choose to edit it that way. But I just wanted to have the opportunity for people who are really into the idea of the constructed language side of the film. In the bonus features, to get an idea of what they saw as the written language throughout the whole film, what it would sound like when Sin and Kana were actually speaking it with each other. So there are five or six different clips on the bonus features, and you will play one subset example of that where Kana is very concerned about what's going on with Sin.
2: Is it wrong of me to feel like having you here as you are is better than losing you entirely?
1: So how did you uh, create that language? What was the foundation that, that you built off for that?
0: The linguistic side of it was not the most important thing. The orthography, the writing side of it, the way it would look on screen was the most important thing. So we started with making Josh as the director happy with what it was going to look like.
2: Always make the director happy, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, I mean, you know, that's the way a film production works. So that's why you do it that way, yeah. Um, But the the sound side of it and, uh, you know, what the grammar would be like and all of that was just for me to play around with. And again, I didn't, this didn't need to be my magnum opus, you know, like it didn't need to be. the the most important conlang thing I ever did in my lifetime. So I just took a lot of grammatical features from Japanese, a few from Thai, a few from Cherokee, which I've been studying not as fervently as I should be, but Cherokee. That's very
2: cool, yeah.
0: And I just, I kind of crammed that with a little bit of Mandarin Chinese into a grammar and a phonology and then just started making up words. So it wasn't incredibly sophisticated. I mean, the grammar is not at all like English. And again, if you're interested in the grammar, then you can find a link on the Sinition.com website to that document. But I just I took languages that were interesting and familiar to me and kind of easy for me. So I guess the, the the core fundamentals of the grammar are based more on Japanese, and I speak Japanese fluently because I studied it before I lived there, and then lived there for about eight years as an adult, as a professional. Wow. Um, so it's really much more like Japanese than it's like any of the other languages I mentioned. Although there there's a lot about some of the verbal stuff and the way you can make nouns, make up new words that is more like Cherokee than it's like Japanese. Mm.
1: The writing's pretty much all over the place. Uh, I noticed in the the behind-the-scenes footage that some of that was actually digitally added uh, after the fact. How much did you have to make props to do that, and how much of it was digitally added in post?
0: I would say if it was paper, if it was doable on paper, we did it for real on paper, because Mm. that's really easy to do today. We also had access to a laser cutter for a day, well not a whole day, but like a few hours of one day. So some of the physical things like the badges that the workers wear and a few other little things that that we could actually cut out of out of a plastic material or out of paper or heavy paper and use those, we did that with a laser cutter. but most of it, you know, if there were steel pipes or there was a huge wall or there was anything that was not paper essentially or not a badge. Or not something that we could use a stencil and spray paint it on. So there's some blankets and the, mm. the, the T-shirt. One of the shirts, Kana's shirt was actually manufactured the way you would order anything <laughs> from, you know, off the Internet. You just send a custom design and get a one-off T-shirt. Oh, yeah. But Sen's since, since shirt, actually, that's all sprayed on there. So it was red. it was red spray paint painted on his shirt. Cool. But the digital stuff, if it, if we had metal pipes or we had a wall, for example, it, the writing need to be up on a huge wall, or we had some creative commons footage from, from Nairobi, for example, and there's a huge billboard in that, and we needed to replace it with Sinyamda. We did that digitally, but as much as possible, even, in, you know, in the case of things where we probably could have fudged it on screen, we made, you know, we made real props. There were a couple of signs that were supposed to look like rusty old metal plates that were actually plastic or or styrofoam or, or a thick cardboard that we painted to look like metal and then rusted cool. it. So, yeah, we just, it depended on whatever that was the quickest and cheapest and, and most reliable, easy way to do it.
2: Well, you did a lot of other visual effects
1: I'm, I'm assuming the there wasn't really a giraffe or kangaroo there
2: uh, yeah and how hard um, was it to get the bed there like in that rocky creek
1: <laughs> well the bed
0: was the bed was super easy the bed you, just, was a free, you were able to carry it well it's like any bed it's basically four pieces the headboard the footboard and two side rails <laughs> it was free off of craigslist somebody was giving it away Oh,
2: nice. <laughs> the bed was
0: a free prop and we just carry it down into the creek and set it up. And, you know, we had to we had to initially reposition one rock, I think, to be for it to sit on. And But wow. there were three others there that were just kind of perfect. So we moved one rock around and that was where we always set it up. We left it set up as much as possible. But one night it was while we were like two days between filming, we just left it set up and we had this freak rain that never happens in California in, in the summer. And it rained on the bed. Yeah. (laughs) It rained on the bed and the bed start, part of it started delaminating, you know, the veneer was coming off of it. So, Oh no. (laughs) you know, all kinds of stuff ends up happening you're during like, production. Man,
2: we all we had to do was put a tarp, and we didn't because <laughs> you're in a draft. I literally,
0: I rushed down, I rushed down to in the in the rain to buy a tarp <laughs> at the at the hardware store and rushed back up and dry the bed off and cover it with the tarp. And of course, you know, within an hour of my doing that, it stopped raining. But but you never. know. <laughs> That's so. how it always goes. <laughs> yeah.
2: And uh, yeah, that was really cool. The, the giraffe,
0: though, the, there are actually three different giraffes. It's like having twins or triplets play one character in a movie <laughs> with their kids. There are actually three different giraffes in the film. One is an African giraffe uh, for the long shot. And then in the close-ups, there are two, two different giraffes who end up on screen. Or maybe only one of them ended up in the final cut. But one of them was just at the zoo, and the long shot where the giraffe, the whole giraffe is standing in the creek, that's actually Creative Commons footage where the giraffe is originally standing on the Serengeti or just standing on a in a plane, you know, in Africa. And the lighting just happened to be perfect to look like it was dappled lighting coming through trees. So yeah. and then the close up giraffe, the winking giraffe at the end was shot at the San Francisco Zoo. Ah, cool. There's a lot of rotoscoping going on, a whole lot more rotoscoping than than I will ever care to do again. And the only <laughs> the only thing that I rotoscoped was the kangaroo, and that just drove me crazy. And I swore that I would never, ever, ever, ever do it again. It's amazing how much kangaroos' ears move while they're not doing anything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, those are the things you don't think about until you, you go, man. Why did I pick a freaking kangaroo? <laughs>
0: I just that rotoscoping that kangaroo is one of the, could have one been of a the,
2: raccoon or something, you know, an uh, elephant how about doesn't a, move. Well, the elephant's are a floppy sna-
0: A snail would have been good. Yeah. A
1: snail that moved <laughs> really faster.
2: Really I was um, saying, really, animals tend to move. I mean, I guess you could have gotten an a- alligator while it's like just laying there with its jaw open or something, but <laughs> real still. We had,
0: we actually, there was an idea to have, some other animals in the film as well, but we didn't really need them in the And then the you realize what
2: a pain in the keister it was to. Uh,
0: to, to well, yeah, they it. all had to be, yeah, they all had to be rotoscoped to get them in there. So it oh, was. Oh, you, you didn't that,
2: get to rent like, you know, the, the zoo animals.
0: Well, there <laughs> is, there is a safari park about 40 minutes from here and they do have at least one giraffe. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder if the giraffe would like to. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to have a little road trip, but it made much more sense to do it digitally. Um, and the, the, all of the Australian animals were just a, a kind of Cersei. They were a serendipity because we, after we finished um, primary shooting, we were on vacation for about two and a half, almost three weeks in Australia. So we actually shot all of those Australian animals. The oh, the wow the cassowary and the well there were actually some other australian animals we didn't put in but the the cassowary and the kangaroo we sh, we shot again at a at a kind of animal park a kind of zoo like place in in northern australia in queensland so that i oh. felt super happy about getting them in there because they were unexpected to us as well we didn't know that we'd actually be able to to film australian animals
2: it was serendipitous
0: yeah it was great we like
1: the actor who played Wee.
2: Yeah, <laughs> he corrects well, me he's, up.
1: Yeah, he was I bet he he's was goofy in, life,
2: in real life. Is he goofy in real life?
1: He, he can
0: be goofy in real life, but he's also, he was inspired by being in our, seeing how our film turned out to make his own film, and he's making a really serious, it's a short, but it's a really serious sci-fi short now called The Toll. He stars in it, but he also um, is producing it. He got a different director, and she's great, Liz. But The Toll, I think, will be something that that your audience and and both of you would enjoy seeing very much, too. I expect it to be kind of in the 20-minute range. Mm -hmm. And it's an alternate reality, alternate timeline kind of look at what, what might have happened around the end of World War II. Oh, cool.
1: Um,
0: and it's really, really good and interesting. And Josh is actually doing some of the special effects on that project for Wiley. Keep us updated,
2: so, Keep us updated on that because that yeah, sounds really people, cool.
0: People can go find it on Facebook or go find the website, The Toll. The film is called The Toll, and it's um, being done by Wiley Herman. Mm. So, I love how
2: his his outfit kept changing. And like it would just change like in the same scene. And I think my favorite was when he's like he's trying to help the humans feel comfortable. So he's like, I'm cooking. And he's got like this girly apron on and a grill <laughs> with a watermelon on it, and the watermelon catches fire.
0: <laughs> yeah, well we, we wanted I loved it. Across, Yeah, we we wanted him to come across as trying really hard to seem normal to human beings, but really not having a clue how to do it. He so
2: never met any before, you know, I mean, you wouldn't have a clue what to do to make an alien feel comfortable. You
0: know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So we had a lot of fun with that stuff. <laughs> I,
2: and he's so dry. I mean, he was so serious through the whole, oh man, it's great. <laughs> we cracked up. It was awesome.
0: Yeah. He's a great, he's a great guy. We loved working with him. And, we were, you know, it was hard to cast that role because we had a few, I mean, it really came down to two to different people and they both would have been great in that role. But Wiley had this really special ability to come across as both kind of ominous and frightening, but also be a teddy bear too, you know, yeah. and for, for you to really want to love him, even if you were kind of afraid of what he was, you know. So, well, he's so we,
2: ominous and frightening because he's just so so different and powerful and a, a sort of a higher level being in in a lot of ways but but teddy bearish in his just completely innocent attempts at trying to seem like I'm here for you and I want to make you but it just missing the mark and having no clue that he's even missing the mark
0: <laughs> yeah we 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 love humor I mean, and kind of different humor, alternative humor, not necessarily slapstick stuff. Stuff that's more kind of funny, weird, as opposed to weird, weird, or funny, funny. So I think Wiley was great. And I, the people who appreciate the humor, and even though it's not, I mean, it's fundamentally not a comedy in any way, shape, or form, but having humor in it is like having humor in real life. Life, you know, even yeah. when there are terrible things going on in real life, people who, are, who have a good outlook on life tend to find humor even in in really dark times. So, well,
2: so we I, wanted yeah.
0: we wanted a combination mm-hmm. of humor and and seriousness in the film. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think
2: people have gotten used to that. I mean, you know, back in the day, MASH really perfected that formula. I mean, there's nothing more serious than war and death and maiming and everything else, but you know, they always manage to find the humor in the mm-hmm. moment as well. So
0: yeah, you have it, to, you have, I mean, you, I
2: mean, you have to, cause if you were transported on some alien ship and, and had no idea what you were in for, I mean, if you don't find ways to release some steam and, and ha- you know, chuckle and kind of enjoy yourself, you're going to go mad.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But some of the things that some of the humorous things like cow juice, for example, that's again, something out of my family. See, that's my brother joking with my nephew about cow juice. And, and I, I had never thought about it that way. But the way you say it in Chinese and Japanese is kind of similar to that, too. I mean, it's, it's kind of like that. So I mean, he is very logical to the extent that he's able to be logical in a human way. So we thought that he might call it cow juice. Um,
2: So that makes sense, though, in the language that would have been yeah. a closer language. translation. It was just sort of a language kind of
0: quirk. Yeah, again, it was playing with, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's playing with language.
1: So before we go, you mentioned a lot of links, a lot of different projects.
2: Yeah, if you could list them all.
1: Yeah, can you tell our listeners where they could find uh, you and your projects online?
0: So the current documentary is everything that you'll need to know, including how to get to Facebook and other places from there, is at conlangingfilm.com. That's conlang, C-O-N-L-A-N-G-I-N-G, film, F-I-L-M, dot com, .com. Mm -hmm. conlangingfilm.com. The SIN project, including the ability to buy the film or find out where to watch it online for free or to buy the bonus materials, for that, you go to senation.com, Sennition.com, S-E-N-N-I-T-I-O-N.com, senition.com. And for Vulcan stuff, you can find that at corsaya.org, K-O-R-S-A-Y-A.org. And I mm-hmm. think that should pretty much do it. Uh- I hope
1: everybody will go
0: explore whatever... Sounds like it might float your boat. Yeah,
2: it all sounds really interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I'm very much looking forward to the documentary. Uh and lastly, you know, we've been asking our guests what their favorite quote from a fictional character is. Now that can mirror your worldview, mean something special to you, or just be something funny. Do you have a quote? Well, I think one of my favorite quotes on the serious side
0: of of sin out of my one of one of our fictional characters is when Kana says In our film, you almost worship it and you don't even know what it is. I think that what we want to encourage everybody to do, whether it's with conlanging or with filmmaking or with just enjoying films, is to stimulate your brain. And to encourage people to not fall into some bubble test fill in the blank kind of well in their life, but to be inquisitive, to be curious, mm-hmm. and to challenge things. So that's why I like Kana's challenge to we. It sounds like you worship it, and you don't even know what it is. You need to question things. You need to figure out why you believe what you believe.
2: And live so examine the examined life
0: yeah yeah exactly exactly live the examined life so so that's what i'll throw out as one of my favorite quotes i have tons of others but i might as well pick one from our own film Mm Hey there, this is Robert Leeshock, best known for playing Liam Kincaid on Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict, and you're listening to Genre
2: Well, thanks to Britton for the information-packed interview. We have all links mentioned included on the show notes at scifipulseradio.com.
1: So it's almost here, our 100th episode. Ooh! I can't believe we've made that many episodes already. I know. It'll be it spe- doesn't
2: feel an episode beyond 98.
1: No, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it will be a special episode with a few of our past guests. One of which is our very first guest, returning to the show, Emmy-winning writer Victor Miller. You might know him from uh, writing a film called, you know, Friday the Thirteenth.
2: I think a few people might have seen that. Maybe.
1: Now we will also have SFP Now's host Ian Colling join us. He's always a always a hoot.
2: He is a hoot.
1: <laughs> and also, International Academy of Web Television chairman Jeff Burns. You might re- remember him from our recent game show episode with the hosts of Super Geeked Up, yeah, or the episode where we interviewed him and the cast of Super Knocked Up, which led to a funny blooper episode with that same... Oh
2: yeah, a little blooper Mm mini-episode with the cast, so that was funny.
1: And of course, we're busy lining up guests for the next 100 episodes, including a return visit from writer Christy Marks.
2: She has written for classic animation series like G.I. Joe, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and Jim and the Holograms for comic books like Sisterhood of Steel, Amethyst, Sword of Sorcery, and Birds of Prey, and also writing for all sorts of video games and TV shows. And she is also the author of the book Writing for Animation, uh, Comics and Games, and she has a cool last name. Okay, yeah, Marks actually did make me say that. Co-host Marks, not Christy Marks, just to be clear. Now, before we go, we want to remind you that you can keep track of us on our Genretainment Facebook page, Marks' Twitter account, which is at Mr. MrMarks, our website at genretainment.com or all of the shows at sci fi
1: So that's it for today's genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series.
2: Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until, Until next time.
1: Bad monkey.